Now would you please turn with me to your study outlines. And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online. And also those at the hangar in Montana and our friends in Arco, Idaho, and also our friends at Purpose Church Rancho Cucamonga. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's word. We come to chapter 8 in John. We're going to pick it up with verse 2. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Now, they must have been watching for her. How creepy is that? They must have been snooping around the windowsills, and they catch her in the very act. She's probably standing there with little more than a sheet wrapped around her body. She's barefoot. She's got a mop of hair, hangs in her face. And after just a few minutes ago, she was catching a stolen embrace, and now here she is standing in front of a crowd of curious people. It says that all the people gathered around Jesus. Now just think of this poor woman. Uh, She has done an unholy thing, and she is standing revealed in the middle of a crowd of people in the most holy place on planet Earth. She's in the holiest city, uh, Jerusalem, in the holiest place in that city, the temple, And here she is completely exposed in front of a crowd of people in the holiest place in the holiest city on the face of planet earth. Uh, She thinks her life is over. This is the worst day of her life. But you know what? Jesus is going to step in and make it the best day of her life. Picking it up in verse 3. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Actually, Moses commanded for there to be judgment on men and women. Where's the guy? Maybe it's one of the ones standing there with a stone in his hand. But it's commanded you to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they're not concerned about the woman. They're not concerned about the Mosaic law. They're not even concerned about the holiness of God. They just want to trap Jesus. See, here's the dilemma that Jesus is in right now. It's no dilemma for Jesus, but it looks like a dilemma. If he says to stone her, now he's lost that reputation for compassion that he has built his ministry on. And he's in trouble with the Romans because the Romans are the ones that own capital punishment. So he's in trouble with the Romans and he's in trouble with his own reputation as somebody who, who preaches love and compassion. On the other hand, if he says don't stone her, now he's undermined the law of Moses, the Old Testament law. And so they think they've got him in a trap that he can't get out of. They were using this question, verse 6, as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. How many of you have ever wondered what was Jesus writing on the ground? This is probably the most biggest mystery, one of the biggest mysteries in the Bible. One of the things we're going to ask when we get to heaven. What was he, what was he writing? And, and we really uh, don't, don't know. We're really not exactly sure. Uh, it's interesting that he's writing. A little bit of a side note is more books were written about Jesus than any other person or subject in human history. He has been the subject of more writing than any person or subject in all of human history. And yet this is the only incident we ever see of him writing anything himself. This is the only time in the Bible we see that. Now the word write here in the original Greek means to write a record against. And so possibly it was a list of their sins. J. Vernon McGee uh, says it might have been something like this. He writes down the name of a woman in Rome. And next to it, he writes down the name of the Pharisee who had an affair with that woman in his early life, and he thinks nobody thousands of miles away now or hundreds of miles away in Jerusalem is ever going to find out about it. 
but Jesus knows. Maybe he wrote in the dirt the address of a prostitute in Ephesus. And that uh, Pharisee standing there with a rock in his hand thinks nobody will ever know about that trip he took to Ephesus. But Jesus knows because he's God. And he writes that name down at that address and next to it the name of that other Pharisee. Uh, maybe he writes down the name of a pregnant girl in Galilee that one of these Pharisees has left behind thinking nobody will ever find out about it. And he writes her name down and next to it, he writes down the name of yet another Pharisee. Jeremiah 17, verse 13. You may want to write that verse down. It's not in your study outline. Jeremiah 17, verse 13 uh, says this. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. So maybe, we're not exactly sure, but maybe he was exposing them uh, in, that, in that particular way. Uh, I love this um, funny story that somebody sent me a few weeks ago. In a trial, a southern small town prosecuting attorney called his first witness, a grandmotherly elderly woman to the stand. He approached her and asked, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? She responded, why, yes, I do know you since you were a little boy. And frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, cheat on your wife, and you manipulate people and talk about them behind their backs. You think you're a big shot when you haven't the brains to realize you'll never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper pusher. Yes, I know you. The lawyer was stunned. Not knowing what else to do, he pointed across the room and asked Mrs. Jones, do you know the defense attorney? She replied, why, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster, too. He's lazy, bigoted, and he has a drinking problem. He can't build a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the worst in the entire state. Not to mention, he cheated on his wife with three different women. One of them was your wife. Yes, I know him. (laughs) The defense attorney nearly died on the spot. The judge asked both counselors to approach the bench. And in a very quiet voice said, if either of you idiots ask her if she knows me, I will send you both to the electric chair. Okay. Reminds me, I told you the story a few years back where I I was on a jury pool. And I got up there and the judge is asking me similar questions. And and she was a very sharp judge. I'd been like admiring how sharp she was. She's just like this phenomenal, you know, one of the sharpest uh, judges I had ever, or the the sharpest judge I'd ever seen. And and she, and there's a true story um, in Covina. And uh, and she goes around and and she says, do you know the defense attorney? I I said, no. Do you know the prosecuting? No. She asked all these people, do you know them? No. Do you defendant? No. And then she goes, do you know me? I'm like, oh, no, what's this about? I go, no, I I don't. She goes, well, I go to your church. (laughs) And the whole courtroom just exploded in laughter. I turned like 20 shades of red. And she said, and she looks around, she goes, it's a really big church. It's a really big church. So anyway, uh, so he reveals all of them right there. At this, those who had heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now, this is exactly where most people stop the story. Jesus is not saying her sin is okay. And most people, and what's popular within American culture with this story, is to go this far, then neither do I condemn you, And to leave out the next phrase, 
where Jesus said, go now and leave your life of sin. See, Jesus is a perfect blend of grace, then neither do I condemn you, and truth, go now and leave your life of sin. Now, I want you to know, churches get out of balance, preachers get out of balance, um, nation, Christians within a nation get out of balance. And whenever you sense me emphasizing one over the other, grace over truth or truth over grace, just know that's not Jesus talking. That's my humanness, uh, my humanity creeping into the mix, okay? Because Jesus is a perfect blend of grace and truth. Jesus is a perfect blend of then neither do I condemn you and go now and, and, and leave your life of sin, okay? A perfect blend uh, between the two. Ken Gear writes, what comes are words of grace, neither do I condemn you, and words of truth, that her life of sin needs to be left behind. The trembling subsides, her face softens, the furrows on her forehead relax. She looks into his face, his forehead relaxes. It's been an ordeal for him too. He takes a breath, and his smile seems to say, go, you're free now. That's Jesus. Perfect blend of grace, then neither do I condemn you, and truth, go now and leave your life of sin. And in churches, with pastors, um, in, in a nation, American Christianity, the pendulum tends to go back and forth. And I would say that when I was a kid, maybe the pendulum was too far at the side of truth and not enough towards grace. But now in reaction to that, the pendulum has gone, I believe, too far the other direction. And now we emphasize grace, sometimes at the expense of, of, of truth, and I plead guilty to that as well. And so if you're a visitor with us here today, understand that we are a grace-filled church. If anything, I err on the side of grace over truth. But I want to balance things a little bit. I want to get that pendulum back into the middle a bit by spending the remainder of our time asking some questions to help us to leave behind a life of sin, particularly in this area uh, of adultery that Jesus was dealing with here in uh, John chapter 8. Because an affair is one of the most devastating things that can happen to a marriage. Uh, the guilt and the shame is just overwhelming. The sense of guilt is horrific. Uh, you can remember, cheat on your spouse, not just physically, but mentally as well. Uh, there's this statistic uh, from the Ashley Madison website, which is a website for married people seeking affairs. Their motto is, life is short, so have an affair. And one out of four people that visit that website claim to be followers of Christ. They claim to be Christians. And so we've got to ask some questions to help me leave behind a life of sin in whatever area it is that we struggle in. Number one, do I believe that living in the light is far better than living in the darkness? In the next verse, right after this story, Jesus spoke again to the people. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you believe that following God is better than anything sin has to offer? I love this quote by John Piper in his book, Desiring God. He says, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long-term than to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. Okay. The psalmist says, my delight is in the Lord. And the more and more that we make him our delight, uh, the more we realize that the, uh, the temptation of sin has less of a power uh, within our lives. I and mean, here's this woman who committed adultery. Would the affection of a new man really bring her pleasure? Would an afternoon with some random guy, would that really build her self-esteem? But she ends up meeting Jesus 
And Jesus points her to a more satisfying, fulfilling life than she could ever find in an affair. Now, do I believe in my life that God has something better than sin for me? Is Jesus better than lust? Is Jesus better than my bitterness? Is Jesus better than getting drunk? I mean, think back to this quote by by John Piper. Uh, The only way to triumph over sin long term is to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. Uh, A week ago, I had a chance to talk to a young mother from the 1111 service, uh, Tracy Morrow, and she and her husband attend the 1111 service with their family. And uh, she is arguably one of the top personal trainers in America. Uh, one of the top um, um, health gurus and workout gurus in all the United States. And she attends our 1111 service. And I, and I was talking to her, and as we began to talk about workouts and things like that, I realized that we were in very different places uh, from each other. You see, for me, working out and eating right is a day-by-day choice. Every day I choose, and sometimes the donut wins and sometimes the workout wins. Sometimes the nap wins, sometimes the workout, workout wins. And every day, you know, it's kind of like they're both attractive to me, and depending on how I'm doing on a given day is which one I chose. But I realize that through perseverance, through hard work, uh, through a lifetime of discipline, through time invested, she has gotten to the place where now there is such joy in fitness that the donut doesn't hold as much attraction and the nap doesn't hold as much attraction as the workout does and being in the feel of, of being in shape. And the same thing is true as we pursue God. The more we pursue him, then the more we learn to delight in him, the less attractive these other things will be. And it's the only long-term strategy that will work in getting victory in whatever area it is that we're struggling in. Number two, do I use the Bible to decide what's right and wrong? Uh, Jesus said in verse 15, you, he talks to the Pharisees, you judge by human standards. Most people decide what's right and wrong based on human standards, on human opinion. Uh, We survey our friends. We read the magazines. We listen to our feelings. uh, We hear uh, from so-called experts. And so the truth becomes relative. Uh, What does our culture think about this? And it kind of is just depending on the moment, what we want, we can find any answer that we want. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, who was the president when I was a kid, he used to tell a joke about a teacher that was interviewed for a job. They asked him, would you teach our kids that the world is flat or that the world is round? The teacher said, I can teach it either way. How do you want me to teach it? Then I'll teach it that way. And and that's the way uh, our culture and world is. What way do you want it taught? And that's the way I'll teach it to you. What answer do you want to find? And that's the answer you can find. Now, God is the objective source of truth. Verse 16, but if I do judge, my decisions are true because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Next page of your study outline. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Okay. Um, imagine that you're doing a carpentry job or, or, or project. And I'm, I'm saying, imagine you're doing it, because if I said, imagine that I'm doing it, at the 1111 service, my wife Kimberly will be sitting on the front row, and she would laugh hysterically the remainder of the sermon, and it would be distracting to, in any way, imagine me doing a carpentry project. But imagine that you're doing a carpentry project, and you've got to figure out if something's level. 
Do you just ask one of your friends from school or do you ask one of your, uh, you know, your friends from your family or your, or your friends from work? Hey, does this look level to you? Do you invite them over for dinner and you're just about to put that thing in there? Hey, hey, does this look level to you? No, if you want to make sure it's level, you get a level, right? Because this is objective and your friend's opinion is subjective. You know, I was working on this Friday afternoon and I called to the custodial crew here and I said, hey, you know what? This is a little hard to see from the balcony. Uh, could, could you get me something just a, a little bit bigger? And so I asked them for something a little bit bigger and this is what they, they brought over to me right here, okay? I think the motto of our custodial crew is go big or go home, okay? So Gene Scarborough, who's the head of our crew, he sits in the back of the balcony at the 1111 service so that he'll be able to see this at 1111. But you get yourself a level. And uh, that's the objective standard. And so in the same way, we don't just ask everybody's opinion. We just don't ask our culture's opinion or a Gallup poll. Instead, we take the level of God's word. And this is what will tell us if something's on the level or not. Not just our friends eyeing the situation, but instead we get the level. And we apply in this particular area, uh, we uh, apply um, uh, God's word uh, to it rather than just simply the advice of other people. Let me ask you a question. Can people give you bad advice? Have you ever received bad advice, somebody? I mean, people can just give us terrible advice, especially in this area. Uh, They'll say things like, it's okay to have an affair if your spouse isn't meeting your needs. You have to live together before you get married to see if you should get married. Just live together until you can afford your dream wedding. You have to try out different people to know if you're compatible before you get married. It's okay to look at pornography because those girls got paid for being in those pictures. It's not human trafficking. Uh, It's just a business transaction. If someone is born with homosexual desires, then it's okay to act on those desires. And, And then we take the level of God's word And we apply to it certain verses like Hebrews 13. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Uh, Job 31 verse 1. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. You know, I came across this article uh, a few days ago by Kevin Miller. He's the pastor of the Church of the Resurrection in, uh, in Wheaton, Illinois. And uh, I just thought it was so powerful. The title of it is Consistent Sexual Sacrifice. See, the important thing is to apply God's word equally to everybody. To make sure that the level is not just applied. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were just taking it and selectively picking out things to apply the level. But to apply it to everybody. And it says consistent sexual sacrifice. Last summer at a wedding reception, a woman asked me, so what is it you do? I paused. Usually if I say I'm a pastor, the person responds while stepping backward. Oh, ah, I've got to get another one of those hors d'oeuvres. They're so good. But I told her what I do. I'm a pastor. That didn't deter her. She said, which group? I said, Anglican. Oh, you're the group that hates gays. She had read headlines that some Anglican churches left a denomination after a man who was made bishop who had left his wife and was living with a male partner. But our concern would have been there even if the new partner had been a woman. So I said, no. In our church, we have many people who feel same-sex attraction. Oh, she said, looking puzzled. What do you do with them? We walk alongside them, I said. They've come to us and said, help me walk the way of Jesus. And they know that for many of them, their longings will remain. And that means a life of celibacy. But what you're asking of them, isn't that unfair? I said, it is hard. I don't minimize that. 
But the way of Jesus is hard for everyone. We tell our heterosexual singles, you've got to stop sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. We tell a married man, I don't care how alive you feel around that new person at work, you've got to stay faithful to your wife. We tell our folks caught up in pornography, come to our support group where you'll admit to other people how much power this has over you. She thought about that for a moment and her expression softened slightly from contempt to consternation. I'd moved up one click on her dial from a loathsome bigot targeting gay people out of irrational animus to a perplexing oddity, like an Amish man with beard and buggy on the streets of Manhattan. The difference was this, consistent sexual sacrifice. She now faced a community whose life she cannot fathom, but whose internal coherence she can acknowledge and even in her most tolerant moments, marvel at. Isn't that excellent? Consistent application of God's word across all areas and across all uh, temptations. Number three, do I realize what my sin is costing me? Uh, John 8, verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. There are always consequences to sin. Maybe not short-term, but long-term. The Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season. So the Bible even teaches that sin is fun short term. It's just eventually the consequences will come out. There are always consequences. No matter how long you wait, even if it's till after your life is over, there are always consequences. Proverbs 6.32. But a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. And so what we need to do is to imagine the consequences actually come up with a scenario in our minds uh, to imagine what the consequences of failure in any area might be. Randy Alcorn wrote an article called The Consequences of a Moral Tumble. He gives a list here. Grieving the Lord who redeemed me, inflicting untold hurt on my wife, hurting my kids, destroying my example and credibility with my children, bringing shame to my family, a guilt, even though God will forgive me, can I forgive myself? forming memories and flashbacks that could plague intimacy with my wife. And so we need to imagine uh, the consequences, okay? Even if there won't be necessarily opportunities uh, to be tempted in that area. You know, uh, when I went into the ministry as a pastor uh, 35 years ago, there were all kinds of warning. Oh, you know, there's a certain type of woman that comes after pastors, so you better be careful. And all these stories pastor would tell all the time. And I want you to know, in 35 years as a pastor, it has never happened to me. So I think to myself, how ugly must I be? I mean, my goodness, my goodness, you know. And uh, Phil Jackson comes up after the 8.30 service. He says, oh, yeah, my dad, it was trouble all the time. Uh, My goodness, he was being tempted all the time. And I'm just thinking, Phil, you're not making me feel any better here, okay? You're making me feel worse. Um, um, But you know what? I still have my uh, imaginary scenario, okay, my my, uh, consequences. I have it. It's two words. It's two words, selling cars, selling cars. Remember I mentioned uh, David Midwood earlier. Uh, he was my mentor as a pastor. And, and I remember him just as a young seminary student, and I was working under him at his church. And I remember him pointing his finger at me and saying, Glenn, if you mess up morally, what are you going to do? Sell cars? And the fear of selling cars 
has kept me in the straight and narrow for these fast 35 years. Now, don't get me wrong. Many of my friends within the church here sell cards, and you are like nuclear scientists to me. I admire it so much. I'm just saying I would be lousy at it, okay? I mean, the customer would say, where do you put the gas in on this car? And 20 minutes of searching later, I'd go get my manager to find out where the thing is. Where's the engine on this car anyway? I don't know, you know. So, so the fear of selling cars, I, um, I had the younger pastors on the front row at the first service, Jesse and Eric, they had done announcements, so then they stayed in on the front row. And so I just wagged my finger at them, and I said, what are you going to do, Jesse? Sell cars. What are you going to do, Eric uh, Holmstrom? Uh, you know, you, and Eric comes up to me later, or Jesse comes up to me later, says, you know, Glenn, I used to sell cars, so that, that's like scary at all. So I said, okay, well, I'll come up with something different for you, okay? As a matter of fact, I do have something different. I heard about this a few years ago. This was even more terrifying than selling cars. Pastor of one of the major churches in America, one of those prestigious pulpits, and he had a failure in a particular area. He ends up selling funeral plots door to door. And so I pointed at Jesse. I said, funeral plots, funeral plots. Eric, you do selling cars. Yeah, you do funeral plots. And, and, and so you have these scenarios. You imagine the consequences. You say, well, Glenn, shouldn't we be just good enough to follow Jesus because it's the right thing to do? Yeah, but, it, it, but sometimes we need more. And sometimes we need a scary movie in our minds as to what the nightmare consequences are for failure in a particular area. That, that sometimes we need to imagine the consequences. Everybody's life is either a warning or an example. And the way we live our lives is either a warning, don't go there, or an example. I mean, one of the advantages of being a pastor is for almost everything, I can tell you, oh my goodness, that will lead to that. And, and, and this start will lead to this finish. And so we need to imagine the consequences. Number four, do I believe that the truth will set me free? Verse 31, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, in the original Greek, this means to obey and to practice my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then if you, remember, it's not just any time that the truth will set you free. Okay? It's if you hold to his teaching. If you obey his teaching and practice it, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Set you free means free from the penalty of sin and free from the power of sin. Verse 33, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. This is what we call denial. Uh, we can't be freed from something until we admit that it's a problem. It's what they say in Celebrate Recovery is a reality step. And by the way, a commercial, uh, Celebrate Recovery, Tuesday night, 6.30 over in the H building. For anybody who has hurts, habits, and hang-ups, which is everybody one of us, okay? Does anybody have a hurt, a habit, or a hang-up? I know I do. Well, Celebrate Recovery, 6.30 on, on, uh, on, on Tuesday nights. And so it's called, uh, by Celebrate Recovery, it's called a reality step where we admit that it's a problem. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin, okay? Uh, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, and we are trapped in uh, that uh, denial. So easy to live in denial. We say, it's not so bad, I can stop any time. It's not hurting anyone. I can either cover up my sin or I can admit it. And admitting it is the first step uh, to freedom from it. He says, now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Number five, am I buying into any of the devil's lies? Verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil, 
and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Dane Ocker writes, how does Satan lie to us? Two ways I see it today. First, Satan has turned grace into a license to sin. That is too much emphasis on grace over truth. But then the opposite, sometimes the pendulum goes the other way for people. Satan has convinced us God could never forgive us for our sins. That's where truth is overemphasized at the expense of grace. Romans 8, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And then the final question, do I live like I'm convinced that Jesus is God? Uh, Jesus said in verse 53, or I'm sorry, the Pharisees said to Jesus, who do you think you are? This is the Pharisee speaking to Jesus. Who do you think you are? And this is the most important question in life. Most important question anybody will ever answer in their life. Who is Jesus? This is who he claimed to be. Verse 58, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. They knew what he was saying. He was saying, I am God. Moses encounters uh, uh, the God in the burning bush. And he says, what's your name? And he says, I am that I am. And so when Jesus says before Abraham was born, I am, they knew he was claiming to be God because look at their response. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. John 8 starts out with a woman caught in adultery who's gonna be stoned. It ends with people trying to stone Jesus. You see, that's what Jesus did on that first Good Friday that we celebrate at the Easter season. What did he do? He took the stones for us. This woman was about to be stoned, and Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. And he backed it up by taking the stones on her behalf, on our behalf, by being nailed to a cross and dying on Calvary. It starts with a woman caught in adultery who's going to be stoned. It ends with people trying to stone Jesus. If I am convinced that Jesus is God, then why would I hold back anything from following him? If Jesus is God, then he created you. Uh, Jesus died for you. He rose from the dead. If Jesus is God, then he's going to judge you and me someday in heaven. Why would I hold back anything? anything from him. If Jesus is God, we need to act like it and hold back nothing in our pursuit of following him. And we need to, here's the addition, we need to do anything we can to help our friends connect with Jesus. Whether it's the next 14 days before Easter or if you're in Idaho or or Montana or Rancho and you're hearing this after Easter, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every day is Easter Sunday. Every day is a day to share Jesus with our friends. Every Sunday is an opportunity to invite our friends to a place where they can, where they can hear about Jesus. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But in Matthew 5, verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. And it's amazing the difference that one light can make in a dark room. Now, I want you right now to think of one person uh, that God has uh, laid on your heart to invite 
uh, to one of the Easter events, to one of the Holy Week, Palm Sunday through Easter, Monday, Thursday, Journey to the Cross, Good Friday, uh, one of the Easter services either here or at Fairplex. I want you to think of one person right now, and if you're hearing this later after Easter is over, who's one person that you need to invite to church next Sunday, or one person that you should be praying for, or one person uh, that you need to uh, share, share Jesus with? And let's just turn the lights off right now. And remember that final point. It's amazing the difference that one light can make in a dark room. And Jesus is calling you to be that light over the next 14 days, over the next seven days till Palm Sunday, the next 14 days till Easter. He is calling on you to be that light to somebody in your life that he's going to place on your heart, somebody in your family, somebody that you work with, somebody you go to school with. And then lead them by the light in your life to come to a place where they can encounter the light of Jesus. Easter at Fairplex is probably the best chance or one of the other events that I mentioned. You lead them by the light in your life to a place where they can encounter for themselves the light of Jesus Christ. And then you pray that God will cause that flicker of light in their lives to be ignited as well. Let's stand together to close in prayer. Lord, right now as we close this service, we have 14 strategic days until Easter Sunday, seven until Palm Sunday, 11 until Monday, Thursday. 12 until Good Friday, Journey to the Cross, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. But we've got 7 to 14 strategic days. And I know right now that Satan's desire for us is to get so busy, to lie to us and say, you've got this to do or that to do. You don't have time to invite that friend. You don't have time uh, to to go online and invite them or to go on Facebook and invite them or or give them a call, or, or, or invite them to lunch after Easter. You don't have time for that. That's what his lie is to you right now. But we have eternity stretching out in front of us. And we have this unique, the best two weeks of the year in front of us to influence our friends and family to connect with Jesus. Right now, Lord, we lift up all these names that we've been thinking about. And pray that you will use us to change our world for Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's family said, amen. God bless you. Prayer room is open if you'd like prayer. God bless you. Have a great day. Have a great week.